This is the Missio Savannah podcast, where we share about what God is doing in Savannah through mission and the testimony of Savannians. In this episode of the Missio Savannah podcast, I have the opportunity to sit down and talk with Drew Miller virtually from his uh, home in Statesboro, Georgia, as he wraps up three years of ministry there as an Anglican church planter. Being a church planter in a college town during COVID has not been an easy thing, yet God has used his calling on Drew in Statesboro in steady and powerful ways that are impacting the community and the lives of people that Drew has encountered. Drew is a deeply thoughtful person, and I know you're going to benefit from taking the time to listen as Drew recounts his experiences as a young priest and church planner in Statesboro and shares about his past experiences in Charleston and his current call to ministry in Florence, South Carolina. All right, Reverend Father Drew Miller, welcome to the Missio Savannah podcast. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm uh, recovering from a week of COVID, but but not too bad, all things considered. All right. So you're in you're in COVID phase right now. So you're a little bit you're a little bit drained, but you've joined us for this podcast. That's true. Well, if you're being stuck at home in in quarantine, this would be something I could do that would be uh, potentially useful and certainly more interesting than staring at my wall for another few hours. Awesome. So. And this is your second run-in with COVID, right? You've got two rodeos. It is indeed. This is the second go. Yeah. And, you know, nobody needs more shows about COVID, but the fact that you've gotten COVID twice, um, it's kind of, it feels sort of, it's kind of been what you've been through here. It's like you've been through a lot of um, sort of Murphy's Law sort of stuff here. And for people that don't know, you've been involved in church planning in Statesboro, and it just seems like there's been a lot of things that have been challenging, including getting COVID twice. Yeah, for the for the end of the season in Statesboro to to for it to end with another bout of COVID is fitting. <laughs> there's like a this kind of a full a full full circle to it, a bookend. All right, so let's take a step back. Of course, I I know you, Drew, so I, you don't need to tell me your backstory. But folks here, uh, folks listening in, they may be listening in from various and sundry denominations, faith, backgrounds, interests. They might not even be from Savannah. They might not even be Christians. Who knows? But um, to give people a little backstory about you, you have been in this neck of the woods, not Savannah, but sort of in Savannah. You've been in the midst of Savannah and mostly Statesboro now for, what, three, four years? What's the what's the total length here you've been around? Yeah, right at three years. At three years. So what have you been... What has been your sort of designation and mission, official mission in life over the last three years? Yeah, so I, I was um, called by Christ Church in a partnership with our diocese or our region, uh, our, our church network for this region, to be what we call a, a curate. For A curate is someone who is uh, in kind of in training and preparation for being cut loose in ministry. Um and specifically a curate for church planting to so someone who was brought in as kind of a trainee to be sent out. 
So it, it was kind of a different, normally that a, a curate is someone who comes straight out of seminary and then is getting put in a more formal setting to kind of apprentice under someone. Uh, but because I was part of a church plant back in Charleston and served for a few years there, when I started seminary online and before I finished it, this curacy was streamlined a little bit where I was sent out more quickly than, than you would normally have been um, just because I had enough experience going into it and because there was already a team here in Statesboro. So I was called by Christchurch in Savannah and by the Gulf Atlantic Diocese to plant here in Statesboro. And number one, you were hopefully called by by God in three persons, right? Not just Christchurch, but you felt a call from from God to say, this is this is what I'm called to do after seminary was I'm going to plant a church in Statesboro, Georgia. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And that call often mediated through his people, you know, and for us in general. So it's, uh, for me, there was a initially not a clear sense of personal call here. What, uh, when I, when I came, I came in, uh, kind of obedience to the invitation of, of Bishop and of, of Mark Robertson, who was the lead pastor in down in Savannah at the time. Um, just to kind of honor their invitation and because I thought it would be worth exploring, but I didn't have any sense that this is what the Lord had until so I came here and there was a team of people on the ground, about 12 adults, eight kids. And uh, I, it was the first sense of personal call, like kind of internal sense of call that came was sitting down with them for a Bible study here in town and really feeling uh, like, uh, like, Jesus is described in the Gospels when he sees the crowd and says they're um, harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And um, and that was the sense that I got in this group was that I, these people need someone to care for them and to pastor them. And and I still wasn't convinced it was me, but I was pretty convinced it needed to be somebody. Right. Um, and then over the next six months, kind of more a gradual shift as other doors closed and as other things I intended to explore fell out. Uh, it became more and more clear that this was the, this seemed, this seemed to be what the Lord was calling. So you didn't get golden tablets or anything. You didn't, you didn't get a giant billboard blinking at you saying, go to States, but sort of a steady call through people. That's right. Yeah. Now, I guess for, for people that aren't uh, into denominations, you, you are an Anglican, an Anglican church planter. Um, That's right. I have to admit, I'm also I'm also an Anglican, although I'm not an Anglican church planter. I'm an Anglican. Um, for those that don't know denominations, uh, I guess in, in here in here in the United States, Anglican has its own sort of uh, meaning. In England, it's it's the mother church. It's there forever. It's 50 percent of everybody is. It's where all the money is, where all the power is. And then if there's Anglican churches all over the world here in America. It's sort of been this more orthodox uh, offshoot of the Episcopal Church uh, that sort of has developed over the last decade or so. So when we say when we say Anglican in America, that's what we're sort of referring to is these, this orthodox branch of Anglicanism that has emerged over the last few decades. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And so you said you were in Charleston for church planning before you were, uh, you went on, you began your, uh, seminary online so that's right tell me tell me about that that experience yeah so i i came back so i went i went to i grew up in charleston i went to Furman for undergrad and towards the end of my college experience i had a profound a season of profound doubt and um and uh 
kind of despair in faith and in personal life. It was, I had, I had experienced a strong sense of being called to ministry. Uh, one of the few like near voice of God sense of call, like a very clear sense of um, deliberate call to pastoral ministry, junior year of college on a study abroad, actually in South Africa. And, uh, but when I came back, I had this a series of friends walking away from faith and a community of faith that just dissolved. And that, brought me to the point of questioning whether or not I could trust God, whether or not I wanted to be with him if he was real, whether or not he was real at all. And so I came back to Charleston looking to recover faith if I could um, in a community that I had had grown up in and that knew me and that knew the Lord and hopefully might be able to facilitate some reconciliation there. Um, And so when I got back to Charleston, I was looking for a church to attend. A friend of mine had just done this discipleship program at, uh, through a church downtown called City Church, which was a plant slash a, a planted campus of a larger Anglican church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina called St. Andrews. So um, I got involved there first with the discipleship course, um, helping with the youth program at St. Andrews proper in Mount Pleasant. Um, but because I was uh, quickly living downtown and working downtown at a coffee shop bar, um, my heart was with the work downtown and the people downtown. And so slowly over the first two years, it kind of transitioned to out of the youth stuff in Mount Pleasant to being a part of the church plant in Charleston. So I, I really got involved at city church in it's halfway through its second year of existence. It had been planted by a friend of mine named Todd Simonis in a pretty remarkable way they, they planted in what's called the, the like the hive model or the the break model where they take a group of people from the sending parish and all move together but he brought a group of people young adults and leaders that he had personally discipled through this discipleship course program so he came with 50 high caliber leaders to downtown when church planning wasn't really a big thing in charleston yet uh, it was the first real church plant that I had heard of uh, right in the middle of downtown. It was way trimmed down. It didn't look Anglican. We had some liturgical shape to our worship, some some, some shape similar to the historic liturgy, but um, didn't follow it tightly at all. Um, we met in a bar um, that was old and floors were sticky and it was a not your standard Anglican worship experience and it exploded. It was like a um, particularly coming in with that number of people and that caliber of people, the city church went, when I got there two years in, it was maybe 150 people and it was pushing 500 within another couple of years. It was a wild. In your uh, role, so you came, you come in as a youth, you were doing youth ministry now you yeah. went to Furman. What what kind of background did you have? That I mean, obviously you're struggling with your faith. You plug in, and suddenly you find yourself in a sort of a leadership position. How did that How did that turn happen that quickly? And what made yeah, you feel like so, I can do youth ministry? Well, so I was my role with the youth program was I was the worship music director uh, for their program in Mount Pleasant. So the city church downtown didn't have much by way of youth. They were primarily young adults, so not a lot of you know teenagers when your congregation is in its twenties and thirties. Um, and so I was working in Mount Pleasant and I was there, you know, five hours a week facilitating their worship, um, helping put together a worship team and coaching them in music. 
so I, when I came back, I believed and wanted to believe, but was struggling because I didn't feel like I had any emotional experience of God or engagement with God. And so it was a, by the time I got back to Charleston, I had enough belief to say that I did believe. And, um, and so I was challenged by some friends to say, well, if, if you believe, why not walk forward in the ways that God has used you and just see, you know, from there. I led worship in college with the campus ministry called RUF, which was associated with the Presbyterian Church of America and um, had done some youth stuff, summer camp stuff before. So the, that was a pretty easy uh, step in. The step into city church was a little different. So I, I resigned from worship, from leading youth stuff so that I could be more engaged with the church plant downtown. Um, and we, I started leading, uh, I was part of a small group down there that grew and we multiplied it into two. And then I, I um, took one of those groups and that group split and then split and then split. So we had several kind of generations of growth and, and multiplication in our groups that, um, and uh, sometime in that process, I was hired as the pastoral assistant at the church in Mount Pleasant, doing all kinds of kind of office style work, research for our theology courses and kind of grant work in preparation for them. Um, that led to me being brought on as part-time as assistant at the church plant downtown. And then as the small groups director for St. Andrews at large. So it was kind of a long windy way to get into ministry by the end of it, when the lead guy at so city church grew to about 500. Um, but we, at that, that was five or six years in and the leaders that had come over with Todd to plant at that point were pretty burned out and tired. They'd been pushing hard for five years and so we didn't have, and we didn't have the, a system of developing new leadership. And so we couldn't maintain that pace of growth. It was just burning our people out. We were growing and multiplying too fast. Mm -hmm. And so the, um, and with that, we had leadership in Mount Pleasant that kind of constrained our ability to do some leadership development things for the sake of the unity of the, because multi-site church trying to maintain a, a centralized DNA um, they didn't want us to branch out in ways that I think and, and leadership thought would have been helpful for us to develop leadership. Um, but it, it was their, you know, their decision to make. And so um, the church plant dropped a couple, maybe 150, 200. The lead pastor took a call elsewhere and I was the de facto interim for about nine months. Oh, wow. You were the interim pastor with no, no seminary experience or anything. You had just dropped it. Yeah. I had done, I had done a couple years worth of online courses. Well, about a year's worth of online coursework at that time. Yeah. Not very little experience, not very little study or experience, um, but a lot of support. So I had a, yeah, you had, I mean, you had real experience over a long period of time, but just in terms of the classic, sort of Anglican yeah. model, they're typically going to put somebody in with some, some sort of academic tickets, but, uh, no, that's right. I got ordained just in the middle of that season as a deacon, uh, because I, they needed me to do weddings and they wanted me to have some level of authority to do those weddings. And so I had like a shotgun ordination, like a very quick, uh, we, we we've been getting ready for this for a long time. We just got to get it done. Let's do it. How about two weeks? All right, we'll do it in two weeks and a quick ordination and off to do the weddings. So.
All right, so the fact of the matter is you're here pastoring a church with, I guess, 350 people or so in it, and now you're, and you hadn't even gone to seminary yet, right? Oh, yeah. You're going online, Mm -hmm. and so you go from, I guess, having a really large church to then going to seminary. What, What was that experience like? I mean, you probably had people at seminary that were, they had the dream of having that position, <laughs> you know, the cool big church in Charleston. And then you're, you know, leaving that to go to seminary. What was that like? Yeah. Well, I mean, by the time I got there, it was probably 200 people ish, uh, which is still huge. I mean, in the Anglican world in the U- U.S., that's higher than the average by, by a good bit, I think. Um, but there was a there. I mean, there were so many challenges with that church in particular that were uh, cultural challenges to being in, in Charleston, but were also structural challenges with being part of a mega church multi-site system. Um, also, it was uh, a totally unnatural strategy for church planting. Like very few people can go with 50 people anywhere, you know, for anything, you know, unless you're in the military, that doesn't happen. You know, you don't move with that many people. And so to have that level of engagement from the gun was impressive. Um, so, I, I mean, I think in some ways going into seminary, it did. I mean, that definitely forms the way that I approach seminary. A lot of my um, questions, I, I was trying, I tried to be very practical in a lot of them. Like, well, how does this theology affect pastoral ministry? And um, also, uh, you know, it's hard to hard to differentiate between the ministry experience there and the formation that happened as a leader at the the mega church system. Because while a lot of that was unhealthy, frankly, and not great, um, the there were some leaders there that were incredibly healthy and formative for me. And so I I came out of that with a more theological acuity than most people go into seminary with because I'd done a lot of extracurricular study under a couple key leaders. And so um, I, I, particularly in the Anglican world, historically our leaders come into ministry a little bit later in life. You know, a lot of Southern Baptist uh, ministers and maybe Methodists as well. There's a, you come into ministry straight out of college you may or may not go to seminary, but it's young, you know, when you start. And in, right. in the Anglican world, very often it's a second career. It's it's the second call. Like you're you've already been in life for a while, and then you get pushed, drawn, called into ministry. And so, um, seminary in the Anglican tradition has often expected people not to be coming in with uh, young minds fresh out of undergrad. They're expecting old minds who are kind of wise in some things in, in life in the world, but don't have a lot of theological background. So that that made my experience at Trinity, where I went to school in Pittsburgh, I think a little different than the average. Interesting. Yeah. And it was, it was also one of the biggest things about that seminary experience. Most people go to seminary and it's the deepest community they've ever experienced because you're with a group of people doing life together, praying on mission together, uh, the mission being, you know, study and, and grow towards ministry. And there's a lot of kind of like longing for that season afterwards for people. Like, 
and it is a beautiful season, beautiful community, consistent worship in the Anglican tradition and at Trinity specifically, the day you have morning and evening prayer every day. So your whole study is bookended by worship and by prayer, which is a beautiful thing. For me, seminary was an incredibly lonely experience um, because I came out of a church plant of a couple hundred really uh, missionally minded young adults trying to engage with downtown Charleston thoughtfully and doing life together and and enjoying life together. Uh, also where it's warm, which is very pleasant. And <laughs> Pittsburgh is not warm or pleasant for that in that fact. For and you had family there too, I guess. You did, well. family there as well in Charleston. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of several generations of family. We've been there a long time. So as in every season, the things I would change about it or adjust in it, but I was really grateful for that season and for the relationships that came out of it. One of which is is the, the, the church I'm headed to now in Florence. It was a buddy of mine who was friends before seminary, but but he was um, his family was the reason seminary wasn't totally lonely in a lot of ways. Um, at least in the first little while, I made friends as we went, but they really took me in as a family, and um, I'm, I'm really excited to spend some more time with them now. Well, you know the Trinity because for people that don't know that aren't in the Anglican world, and some Anglican world people aren't even aware. You know, it's in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, so it's it's a pretty stark pretty stark place. I mean, it's got its charm, but it's kind of cold and it could feel kind of lonely for uh, someone from Charleston, I think, to be to find the, the wind whipping over the Ohio River and yeah. itself in a little apartment somewhere. It would, <laughs> You know, the thing that, that was most disorienting to me was that I lived about a half mile from the river and I never saw it because the structure of Pittsburgh is uh, is it's industry focused. And so you've got the, the rivers and then you've got the factories and then the railroads that carry the stuff from the factories and the highways that bring people to the factories. And then the mill towns that are usually walled off from the highways with a wall, literal wall. And so you've got all this natural beauty, that polluted natural beauty, that is blocked by layers of industry, uh, which in Charleston, it's, it's the opposite. Like everyone is trying to get to the water. That's what yeah. beauty is. And so it, it was very disorienting, but that's, that's it. The total aside. That's yeah, a little a little on the aesthetic aesthetic side of cities. So you, you go to Statesboro, which also has its different it's di- Statesboro is a different place in Charleston. It's sort of its uh Indeed. its charms and its draws. Indeed. So had you ever been to Statesboro before you uh you showed up for that that Bible study? No, I honestly didn't know it existed. I, I didn't know where it was. I had to Google it. Um <laughs> turns out uh like Georgia Southern University, which I'd also never heard of. Uh, I, you know, apologies to my friends here now. Um, it's a huge state school. You know, 20, 22,000 undergraduates as, a, as of a couple years ago. Um, a good grad program as well. Huge, well-developed system. I mean, it's bigger than Clemson. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a massive school. And Statesboro, you know, I, it's funny being in Statesboro. People ask where you're from. They say Charleston. And they always say, why did you come here? Like, that's like almost always the response, you know. <laughs> oh, I love Charleston. Why are you here? Um, and, and, and that's, that's unfortunate. Um, Statesboro has, has a reputation of being less than it is. But it, it really is a great city, um, town, not a city, um, small town. But it's, it's a really neat one. There's a great community here. Um, the college pumps a lot of interesting thought and interesting um, engagement with this was otherwise small town um 
the small town offers some of the kind of quaint shopping and restaurants boutique that you'd get in a small, any small, you know, mountain town or whatever. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of green around it, farming country and, and swampland. So if you, if you've got a canoe, um, or if you've got, uh, you know, some adventure in you, there's, there's ways to really have, have some cool, um, explore in some, in some neat places here. Um, but no, very well, let's, let's, let's hear about the neat places. So like this, make it a little travel, little travel log here, interrupting the, the general talk where, so where are the, where are your hidden finds for sort of outdoor experiences? Well, so there are, well, so, so you've got the Ogeechee river down, down the, just about 45 minutes outside of town to the right, to, you know, East to the right of me. And, uh, it's, uh, large freshwater river flowing down into the Savannah river and, and out. And, um, I have that one of my great regrets is not having canoed it. I've spent some time out around it and, and, um, kind of walking, exploring around it. There's some, if you've got a fisher, if you've got a fisherman's license, fishing license for, uh, Georgia, you can get onto some of the public land out there and uh, a lot of trails and space unmarked, just kind of exploration that you can do. But that's a little more edgy. Like you're getting out there and you're yeah. out there. If you want some more kind of manageable adventure, George L. Smith State Park. Yes, the, uh, the bald cypress trees. Yeah, beautiful cypress trees in the, you know, a man, it's a man-made lake that was a, it's a creek. I think it's called Five Mile Creek that was dammed in the 1800s to create a wood mill. And the wood mill is preserved there on site. Um, and you cross the dam through the wood mill and there's a three mile loop with some little side trails that takes you through some of the sand dune, um, sand dune forest. That's kind of unique to the, the East coast that is, uh, it's neat. It's full of, they've got a lot of gopher tortoises there, which is kind of neat. Um, a rare species of ground tortoise that can get, you know, bigger than a basketball. It, it is a cool place. I know they were running low on water there. They wouldn't let you get in in one. They wouldn't let you rent their kayaks for a while because they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough clearance when you uh, paddle around. Oh, they really? Were, they were afraid to do. But it is a cool spot. By the time by the time I got up there, the water levels were were replenished. Um, they I know they dropped them in order to drain. I think they were going to clean out part of the lake. Um, but and it's seasonal; it goes up and down. But it's really cool if you put in a canoe on the on the on the lake. So I think it's a 300 acre lake. The um, they've marked out trails through the cypress swamp with kind of swatches painted on the trees, just like you would hiking. You find follow a hiking trail, but they're canoe trails, and so you just kind of like zigzag through the cypress trees, and you have to follow a trail because it is so easy to get turned around in there. Especially, now, are there are there gators in there? Yeah, theoretically there are. I've never seen one. Yeah. Some friends have seen them, but I've never seen one. I've seen some yeah. some frogs and turtles and you know fish. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. So now, so Statesboro, you have you have no conception of what Statesboro is. You come in there now. What is your conception of what this church plant experience is going to be like on the front end? You're totally wide open, or do you have a vision going in of what what this is going to be? in terms of do you have a plan or is it just, let's just see what happens. Um, definitely have a plan, but I, I think it's pretty, I'm holding it pretty open-handedly when I get here, I think just because I don't, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, my, 
this team that I was coming to here has been on the, had been on the ground for almost three years of kind of slow development. And so I knew that the first six months to a year of me being here was probably just me trying to understand the team and the city that we were in. So they were doing, they were doing worship once a month or so priests from Savannah were driving up to lead services at the YMCA here with uh, 10 to 20 people, you know, including kids. Um, and so one of the, with me coming on, they were, they really wanted me to ramp up services to be more consistent there, uh, which is an important thing. Um, if you do too quickly, you tend to burn out your volunteers and your, uh, yourself, you, you put more energy into the service than you do in community outreach and engagement. And that can uh, stagnate your, your church plant life. Um, so I didn't want to do that too quickly. We started doing twice a month because the group needed us. They needed to have a sense of progress after being kind of waiting for three years. So right. we went to twice a month to kind of say like, okay, we're making, we're making moves, but we're not ready to go yet. And, um, and we said it'd be, communion and i think we were doing compline so it was a compline is an is an ancient uh prayer service dates back at least 800 years uh but more than that likely that was a it was a monastic from the the monks monasteries um prayer service for the close of a day and so uh christ church in savannah does a lovely chanted compline on sunday nights if you're around you should go it's beautiful um mystical I think was the word that they use. And it's right. It's really, it's beautiful. Having chanting, chanting behind you in a candlelit space. Um, he, here we were doing spoken Compline, pretty chill, um, informal. This would be in someone's home or. Yeah. The y. Uh, yeah. It was the why was a little, we didn't need that much formality um, for Compline. Uh, but <clears throat> part of the, part of the challenge Part, part of what I knew was this team. I needed to understand who this team was, why they were there, what what brought them into the group. And then I also needed to know the community and what what kind of a church they needed. Because I'm I, I'm an Anglican minister, but I'm an Anglican because I think that it, it offers the best strategies for uh, discipleship in the way of Christ and accountability in that process. So I'm not a an Anglophile and like in this, like I'm not a hyper, I don't get excited about Anglicanism. Um, it's not aesthetically that you have a vision of what an Anglican service needs to look like. And that's what you're hoping to achieve. Right. Nor that that's what, uh, nor that that's the only way to be a Christian. You know, certainly not. It's that I, I think that um, I think it's a really helpful way. And as far as I can see, I don't know why I would do a different way. Right. Um, but uh so with that, within the Anglican world, there's form, formal and informal, what's often called high church and low church. Um, there's different theological positions within Anglicanism and within the, the, the shape. And so I, before I committed to a style of worship, formal, informal, and even to a way of theologically presenting it, though I already I come in with some, some strong uh, preconceptions that would, would shape whatever we landed on. I needed to know what the people were there for and what they wanted. And that was, I mean, one of my first conversations I remember was sitting down with two key leaders uh, uh, who you probably know, Brian, I, I'm sure you do. And uh, we're talking about 
that, like the style of worship, what they were thinking about, what they were hoping for. And one of them said, uh, I basically, something like, I'm down for anything as long as we don't have smoke machines. <laughs> and the other person said, oh, I kind of like smoke machines. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, wait, are we talking about incense? Or are we talking about like true smoke machines? And the first person said, oh, incense is fine. I just don't want to like smoke machine. And the other girl was like, no, no, I think smoke machine would be good. I'm like, oh, no. Like, we, have, we have a wide disparity of what is expected to happen here. Um, and, the, and with that, I mean, we, the, the group was, was a, I mean, I love, I love these people dearly. Um, and so, uh, and they were all there for, for good reasons, but there are different reasons. And so we had some folks who came to the group because they had been alienated by other local churches and were looking for an Orthodox place to belong. Um, and when we Anglican people say Orthodox, we really, it's our code for like Bible believing or, um, sort of rooted in, rooted in the, the traditional beliefs of the church, as opposed to adopting whatever modern culture, just so, you know, sometimes people don't know what Orthodox means. Yeah, that's right. Submitted to the scripture as a revealed word of God in line with the church historic, particularly in the first like four councils, you could say. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, with that, I mean, so we had some folks who came look, just looking for another Orthodox church because they'd been burned by a couple. We had a couple who were members of other churches, but thought that the theological engagement that we offered and the community that was starting to form was attractive. And so they they were see, seeing this as kind of like a, uh, a, a side dish on the main course of their other church. There were some, uh, a different group of people, a, a smaller group that was looking for a high formal liturgical worship expression. Um, but that wasn't Roman Catholic. And, uh, and then we had others who uh, were just invited and showed up, you know? So there's this wide range of different things of being there. You know, if, if I, if I'm, if I'm starting to search from scratch based on my preferences, it's going to be contemporary instrumentation playing primarily old hymns with a, a somewhat informal liturgy. Like that's, that's the ideal scenario for me. Um, and that's what I would hope. I would love. I think. I think it's because it drew me. I think it's a, it's effective, particularly for college students, and engages myth, uh, missiologically with their culture in terms of music, well, and allows for depth of thought and sermon and work. I, that's. I, I think it works, but it's not the only thing that works. And so, being here, I needed to understand what the people were looking for, and I was kind of getting a sense of that. I feel like uh, come Christmas 2019, which is when I. Uh, I got here August 2019. So by Christmas, I was starting to get a feel for what we were, what we were doing. I've gotten a house, this house that I'm I'm in now. Um, yeah. And so, then what? So what happens? Merry Christmas, Drew. So where what happens? Merry Christmas, and then the end of the world. So then we had a uh, COVID set in for too long. Actually, coming out of Christmas, it took a couple of weeks off. A lot of our folks were traveling. That's one of the strange things about college town and working with young families. Uh, is that your Sunday, your, your uh, regular engagement? Your rhythm shuts down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny in a in a in a college town, most churches the big Sundays are Easter and Christmas. In a college town, Easter and Christmas are the lowest Sundays because everybody goes home. Right. So it's really weird. Like it's it's very different um, in a college space. For for me here, there was some there were some folks who would be around, but a lot of folks were traveling. Um, as we regathered. 
the team was pretty anxious to get moving. And so kind of against my better judgment, I said like, okay, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and start doing worship every week. We'll do communion Compline every other week. So I'm still not having to prep a sermon every week, but we can gather. And, uh, and so we did that for maybe a month and then COVID hit, um, and shut everything down. So, um, we started, you know, we did some zoom worship, zoom, uh, Compline services is the easiest. You can't really do zoom communion as easily. You can, people have done it, but I don't, yeah. Doesn't quite communicate the same way um, when you're not in person, I don't think. Um, but uh, and you're just sitting there going, "Okay, this is gonna this is gonna end sometime." But you feel basically you feel like your legs are caught. Any sort of planning is just out the window. You're just gonna you're just in limbo. It's it's the most limbo of limbos, I would imagine, especially in that church right. planning context. Yeah, I'll say, but having this house kept me sane because I could just throw my angst and my energy into work on the house. It was an older house and uh, a lot of stuff, projects that needed, needed doing. And I love that. So I spent, I spent the first month of quarantine, probably as much time as I did anything else in my yard, cutting down trees, like clearing out space that had been overgrown. And um, yeah, it was weird. How did you connect with new people in Statesboro? during that time was just seemed like impossible. All you had with a, was your group and you were out of touch with anybody else or did you have an opportunity? Did you find ways of engaging with people in the midst of COVID? For the first month or two, I was pretty, you know, we, none of us knew what was going on. And so I was pretty uh, restricted deliberately, just kind of, um, Initially, when there's no contact, when you, for the first month of shutdown, you don't really do anything um, except reach out to people and, and try to follow up. I, the people that I had like, already made contacts with really becomes really impo- it became impossible to make new contacts. That got really difficult, but I could follow up with the ones I had. So I'd reach out, call, text, um, FaceTime with people in the group. As things opened up a little bit and we started to get a better picture, I started doing. I, I had a lawn chair in my car. And I would drive to my people's houses and, and just put a lawn chair out and they'd sit on their porch and I'd sit out on the lawn and, you know, talk pastoral care, check in, how are you doing? And pray. Um, went fishing a fair bit. I would take, I would take a couple guys fishing here in town because that you can speak it to be spread out on either side of the pond. The number one spot is act was actually the, uh, the funeral home here has a good pond next to it. And I, I got permission to fish the funeral home pond. Is it, bass or trout or brim. yeah bass What's bass it? brim that kind of thing um i was trying fly fishing you can always catch a bass on a you know a rubber worm if you have to but uh i was trying to fly, fly fish fancy fancy charleston people come well, over here with their uh, trying to be fish. fancy before i went back there and made a fool of myself and trying to learn how to do it because i i'm still awful at fly fishing i can't do it save my life um i caught a few caught a few but then you know i the trick trick was trying to figure out ways to how could I still be engaged in the community that weren't when I, when I, when the, most of the community was in lockdown and there's a group that wasn't, that was just kind of like reckless. Uh, and so I, I tended to, as a young, I'm young and I'm relatively healthy. Um, and so I, I pushed the limits there of what was safe in terms of whether or not I would get COVID. 
Um, I didn't when it came to our group because our group has elderly and immunocompromised people in it. And so I, we, we kept our group pretty much at a distance. Uh, sometime in there, we started doing backyard Compline, you know, with masks sitting around the fireplace, you know, not knowing what we were doing and what was safe, what wasn't. Eventually went to dropping masks, but still being socially distant around the fireplace, uh, campfire outside. And then in the community, the couple of places that were, were open and where you could still, most places weren't open for a while, but when places started opening back up, there were some, some spots that folks were a little bit more reckless in gathering. And so I, I would be there and try to be as safe as I could be while still being able to engage with people. And that's how I ended up getting COVID the first time, almost certainly in one local restaurant that I'd spent a lot of time in um, <laughs> where some of the staff had COVID turns out. So like just trying to pay the bills, trying to keep paying the people, keeping them working. Um, and I remember when you got COVID that time, you were sort of, you were pretty bummed. I mean, I think that that was, you're kind of thinking, okay, you know, I, I feel like I have a few things going on now. And then, then you got COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just kind of is you this sense of kind of sliding, sliding back down the hill. Yeah. That's always, that's very much what it felt like. I will say in that season, the, the most beautiful thing that came out of that, aside from really some really good pastoral care, like, yeah, we, we had attracted a couple people in particular who had come out of traumatic backgrounds and specifically church trauma related backgrounds, as well as some mental illness and kind of anxiety, depression. And so COVID was pretty um, debilitating for them. So a lot of my time in those weeks was pastoral care for the people we already had. Um, and so uh, a lot of long walks with people where I would like literally take walks because we could stay a little bit distant and have a conversation while being in sort of a public setting, you know, instead of like being in my house or something, because I don't have a building here. So to do pastoral meetings, we were usually meeting in a coffee shop or at the brewery. And uh, when those places are closed, we went for walks. So we'd walk around a park or we'd walk the trail. There's a trail here in town. that's a very public straight trail. We just walk the trail and talk. Um, which is great, actually. I've, and I've kept that practice. That's a really great way to meet with people, I think. Um, in that season, one of the best things to come out of it, though, was that I, I, I started volunteering at the um, Statesboro Farmers Market because they were doing trying to keep the market going with car delivery or by a you could do drive-through pickup. So they had volunteers shuttling orders out to the cars. So I volunteered there for a few months and got to know a young couple named Malik and Sandra who weren't, I don't think they were dating at the time, but they just got married last weekend. I was supposed to do their wedding and I got COVID. So I had to hand it off. Some oh. of us, um, which sucks because they're just beloved. Like, I just love this too. But, um, but working, getting to know them has been, that was one of the great treats of this season of this really of my time here because they, uh, love the Lord faithful, just great people. And, um, they became part of our Monday night, Bible study and ended up leading it for a season help or helping me lead it and maybe taking it forward in the future. We'll see. Yeah. So that was bad. And then, uh, and then the, that fall was when um, in the span of two weeks, I had eight different um, family units. So a couple single people, a couple couples, and then a, a one big family that, um, so I guess that's, maybe six, I don't know, six adults with four kids 
uh, announced that they were leaving for in all different reasons. Um, one lost a job, one got a job, one another got a job, one got married and wanted to go to his church. It just was like a major, the group imploded. Um, so I couldn't gather new people. And then my group fell apart utterly uh, by October of 2020. And um, I remember that when I got that last phone call of the, the sixth adult of our initial eight adults who said um, like the, that they were planning to leave. I remember like, you know, having a good pastoral response and like, oh, that's good. That seems like a really good decision. I'm excited for you. And then hanging up the phone and like laughing, like what on earth <laughs> am I supposed to do with that? Like what on earth do I do? Yeah, it was wild. So what did, what did you do? So right there, I mean, you know, naturally it is, there's a tendency to say, wow, this is, this isn't happening, but Hey, I've only been here since August of 2019. I, I feel like I got to do, you know, stick it out a little bit more at least, but part of you has to be saying this just isn't meant to be at that point in time. Or, you know, the big question is God, what are you doing? Yeah. I would think. Absolutely. Um, that was the first round of like reconsidering. Is this right? Should we be here? Was that fall, fall 2020. And um, I mean, but everything, I mean, think about 2020 like what a insane year that was you know and so i um at the same time things were starting to open up that fall i was able, able to get back in the community and was starting to have some really neat missional conversations um the monday night bible study was started with the lead brewer at the brewery and malik and i um that was starting to pick up steam, had some young adults involved in that. that were, it was exciting. And so even as the main group had dissolved, more or less, the Monday night group had, had started to show promises, maybe maybe something there. And as things opened up, there's a lot of hope in the air of like, okay, season's changing. What's going to happen now? Um, so kind of um, doubled down with that group and mission and, and had some great conversations, particularly with philosophy department professors here in town, started building some relationships with them. Um, and then as some of the family was leaving, that's when I first, one of the families was the head coach, the first head coach of the Tormenta team. And it was as he was leaving that I got connected to some of the Tormenta guys. And so that started to develop a, a kind of a missional circle there of, of um, faith conversations. And you became sort of the unofficial chaplain of Tormenta. Is that is that fair to say, or is it? Did you reach that status? I don't know the unofficial status. I, I, there, I have played something of a, that role. I think um, I don't. I know I've met the owners. I've met the coach. I don't know them particularly well at all. I just know, uh, you know, ten of their players um, and and one of the assistant coaches pretty well. And so they we do a. It, it started around the fire. We were doing uh, beer and pizza and deep conversation. The, the frame was, can we create space for conversations that are bigger than football? Um, can we can we talk about something that's more important than soccer for them? Um, a lot of these guys are internationals who are here playing pro sports. It's a fascinating community because they're um, they've made it to elite athleticism. Like they are pro athletes, um, but they're second or third tier 
And so they're paid enough to survive, but they're not, you know, they're just barely making, making do. And they're, because a lot of them are internationals, they're not allowed to work outside of their soccer. So basically they train all morning, have a team meeting around lunch, and then they're off for the rest of the day and they have no money. So they're just like this weird adrift population that's arrived at their like goal and found it wanting pretty soon. So missionally, that's a, that's a really interesting population to, to begin to talk about what, why is this your goal? And is, is this uh, something worth building a life around? And if not, what do you do with that? I mean, one of the most, some of the most compelling conversations with them have been around Augustine's idea of hierarchy of loves, hierarchy of affections. That the problem isn't that we love the wrong things, but that we love in the wrong order. That we we love uh, family more than God, and so we put family on a pedestal, which they can never keep up. They fall and they break, and they fall on us and hurt us. Um, it fails. We or we love our career more than God, and so we throw ourselves into it and sacrifice our family and our health to achieve this thing. Um, and uh, instead of the Lord and it ends up crushing us and crushing the people around us. And so saying like, okay, let's, it's not wrong to love football or to play football. How, but in what order should you love it? And, and those were some really great conversations with the guys. Another good one was what is happiness? And we've come back to that a couple of times now, which is great. What is happiness and how do we get it? Basically happiness as a creature comes from living as a creature submitted to the creator that's where true happiness is and any other form of happiness is a shortcut that ends up less satisfying in the end statesboro is a is a is an unusual town uh it does have a lot of things that i don't and i you know unique i don't know what other I don't know what all the other towns are in the world and how they feel, but this the, this place is unique uh, to me anyway, or it seems different, interesting because it's got the pro soccer team with a lot of internationals that are kind of a major piece of culture here. Um, even though there's not a lot of uh, their games are, are sparsely attended, not bad, but they're not they're not huge cultural moments. But the fact that there is a pro sports team is a, is an important thing for the town. Um, and then you've got the university, which dwarfs the town. I mean, the, the town is like 30,000 people in the city limits. The university is 22,000 undergraduate students. So like the, um, and it's just outside of city limits. So like the, it's a huge influence. And so you've got this deep old South conservatism of a small town, small town, Georgia, with a pretty strong race line. Um, right. I mean, Main Street is the race line. West of Maine is predominantly African-American housing. Um, east of Maine is predominantly white. Um, not exclusively. There's not it's not a hard line, but in, in general, the, you can you can draw a line. Um, and. So you've got that kind of the racial dynamic there, though, I've never seen any conflict here in any sense. Um, but there's there's clear, I mean, there's, it's the South, there's tension. Um, the sons of Confederate veterans are, a, there's a, there, there's a presence here, of, there. Um, <clears throat> and then you've got, um, 
I mean, the, with the communities that I've engaged with, the philosophy department is really involved in downtown, largely because one of the philosophy professors, who's a good friend of mine, plays music at rest. Two of them actually play music around town. I got in, That's one of the ways that I met people early on was playing open mics and then playing music around town. And, um, and so because of that, the philosophy department has an in with several of these restaurants and is close with the staff and the ownership. Um, he's playing tonight at the Indian restaurant, you know, um, and an Indian restaurant in Statesboro. Oh, Statesboro, yeah, it's a, it's actually phenomenal. It's a, it's a, it's a astonishingly good Indian food here in town. Um, it's mind mind boggling, and it's working. Like no one thought, everybody thought it would die because it's Statesboro. Statesboro tends to have food turnover. Like people, the townies want old standbys that they recognize. And the college people are gone all summer. So you have to like build up your cash reserves during the year because you're going to burn them all summer because no one's around. Um, and the, but the Indian restaurant has created a space for young adults that aren't in college, like grad students and professors, and it's worked. Um, I, I'm blown away. The owner there is a, is a friend of mine and is real sharp. He's done, done well. But all that to say, the college, so, so Statesboro is weird because you've got this small conservative town, huge state school that probably is shaded blue, philosophy department that's heavily engaged in the downtown community. Um, this international soccer team, the race line. Um, in the churches, particularly being here in 2019 and 2020, felt like they were pretty politically divided. You had Republican churches and Democrat churches. Um, um, And not only a few that are liturgically minded at all. Um, A Lutheran church that's, that's struggling, a good man pastor there, but struggling. The Catholic church that is not struggling seems to be doing very well. And then an Episcopal church that's theologically uh, pretty outside of orthodoxy and uh, pretty far out of orthodoxy. Um, and I think it's just kind of button along. So there's not a, not much by way of Orthodox Protestant liturgical presence. There's one option really, and it's um, struggling. So my dream was that, that there would be a church here that could uh, preach a gospel that is deeply political, but not partisan, you know, that, that engages with a lot of issues across the board, but is not, um, simply kowtow into one party platform or another um, or one person or another, you know, uh, and one that could be um, orthodox and generous. It's tricky. In this town, you've got two two pools to draw from generally. You've got the townies and you've got the university. <clears throat> the university is seasonal and it's on a time clock, like everybody's moving. So you got, other than the professors, you know, um, everybody else is leaving every couple of years and Georgia Southern often has transfers in and out. So it's a lot of, not a lot, it's a, a lot of not four year students too. seems like anyway. Um, but some are, even if the ones that are, I don't usually find them until a couple years in. So I don't get them along. Um, the t- and so the high transients in the college community and then the townies, if they're here, they were already connected. Generally they're here because they're connected to a family here and they have a family church here. And so asking them to be a part of what we're doing is a big ask because they're stepping away from community to be a part of it. Um, Most church plants 
seem to thrive or at least thrive grow best when there's in high growth areas where there are people moving to town because those people are already looking for community. So you plant in an area that's growing quickly, which we kind of thought Statesboro might be enough of that to do it. But most of the growth doesn't seem to be, uh, it's mostly seems to be around the college. Um, we still don't have any industry other than the university here. And the college is pivoting towards more short-term contracts so as to avoid giving tenure and tenure costs to different faculty. And so they're increasing their turnover, their transients as a university, not decreasing it. One of the options in a college town is building a church around college students. Drew explains why he took a different path in Statesboro. No, and I, I made the deliberate choice to not do that um, because it is almost impossible to build a consistent, stable church plant with college students. So that to, to commit myself to being present on campus, I believe, would be to committing to a campus ministry and not a, a multi-generational church. So that was my that was my gamble was I was saying I don't I don't think that I and we you know you and I actually talked about this a little bit and that I there was some some consideration maybe we should just pivot to campus ministry maybe we should do something like a Christian study center or a, an Anglican uh, ministry on campus and I I decided against that because my heart is not in that that's not what I came here for it's not what I want to do to be a campus minister I love campus engagement. Um, but I, I, I want to, I want to see a, a sustainable church um, exist here in town. So I focused instead on on pockets of young adults that I could find. So uh, and most of those related to the downtown food and bev scene. So uh, the brewery, the coffee shop, the Indian restaurant. You know, there was some success there. There were people who came from it, folks who um, who really did grow in faith and and, and pursued the Lord. Even still, young adults in town tend to have high turnover. They're, they might stick around for a couple of years, but not, not much more than that. Um, the ones that I did seem to be already in, involved in, in churches or uninterested entirely. But those are the people that I often spend the most time with, those not interested in church at all. And that's one of the things that makes it really hard to leave is that I've got a lot of people here who are willing to talk about God with me who don't talk about it anywhere else. Um, it's been a great honor to 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 be there for that and joy. I mean, just great people. Drew's steady and relational approach to sharing the gospel doesn't translate into quick church growth or into closing the deal in terms of conversions to Christianity or church membership. Yet it's a critical form of engagement in a place like Statesboro where people are suspect of being sold something or pressured into belief. I thought for a while that meant that I wasn't good at evangelism, like that I moved slow, or that that wasn't something I was gifted in, you know, like that, that the Lord wasn't using me there. So I'd kind of avoided thinking about myself in that way. Like I, I'm a pastor teacher. I came to States Road because it was already a team on the ground. I didn't have to start from scratch. That was literally my thought process. Was, I don't have to start from scratch. There are people here. Little did I know. Um, but but uh, what I found is that that early engagement with folks who are far from God is some of the most, that's the most interesting work for me. Like, I love that. Um, 
and I and I seem to be good at it. I gifted at it. The conversations are natural and engaging and thought provoking for them and for me. Um, and somehow I can I'm able to have those conversations and to push, and it not come off as aggressive kind of evangelical Bible beating, but it's um, more thoughtful. And it but the thing is that kind of ministry takes way longer and not just on an individual scale, but as a church plant scale, like to, to plant that way, if it works in terms of presenting it, pr- pr- uh, resulting in a church established church system institution, <clears throat> uh, it's a 10 to 15 year strategy. And that's kind of, I was starting to kind of settle into that when, when we got, when I got this call, to this church in uh, Florence, everybody invited me to take. Um, but I, you know, the whole, the whole time, one of the questions that always lingered for me was, is the way that I want to do ministry, which is slow and faithful love for people who are far from God, is that actually a reasonable strategy for church planting? I think it's true pastoral work. Is that actually good planting strategy though. Um, and I think in our current models, no, the current way that we think about church planting generally, that is not a good way to do it because it takes too long. It requires too much financial input from the outside and it burns you out. Like it's exhausting. Um, it's a lot of people not showing up to meetings and it's a lot of, uh, I mean, a couple of years of, of, being at the brewery every Tuesday night and the Indian restaurant every Thursday night to try to build relationships with people. Um, it's a long-term investment, but the, the upside of that is seeing, you know, seeing one of the soccer players come to faith last year and seeing um, some of the philosophy department asking, <clears throat> in, engaging thoughtfully with questions of faith in ways that I hadn't seen before and, and, and extending respect to the traditions of faith. Um, in ways I hadn't seen. And to be, to be clear, um, my close friend, the philosophy professor, musician, he had immense respect for faith from the beginning. Um, so just, so as if, if any, any of friend listening, here's that. Yeah. That was not my work. That's that relationship is one of the ones that I grieve most in leaving. And I hope to continue from afar. He's become a dear friend in this season. As Drew transitions to this next season of life, one of marriage and a new job as an assistant rector in Florence, South Carolina. He wonders how God is going to use his gifting of slow relational evangelism that God has blessed and used during Drew's time in Statesboro. I don't know. And that's something I'm worried about, honestly, but I, I, I think I know no matter what in this next season, I will do less of that. Like, there's no way I could maintain the same pace of like every day out on town, having these conversations with people. Um, that's not sustainable. It, it probably wasn't sustainable even as a single guy, but it's certainly not sustainable now as I look towards marriage and as I look towards a more traditional associate position. Uh, I've My friend, the rector, the lead pastor of the church I'm going to work for, I've been very direct with him in our conversations about building in a deliberate mission time uh, time to my schedule where I can simply be engaged in the community, not expecting to be productive in terms of the system and what the system needs, 
but um, relationally productive and building building relationships there. <clears throat> and it's actually what their church needs is that they need to develop a culture of that as kind of any established church needs to keep pressing into. It's easy to lose. And so having an associate that can devote a significant portion of their time to it um, is a good thing. But I do worry about that. And I, <clears throat> I would not be surprised if I'm not back in church planting after this season in Florence. I, I hope I am. Um, I think the sweet spot would be planting with a team of, you know, 20 or 30 people who were not going to move away and who were committed to the, to the vision. Um, and there are ways to assess that better than we did going in. I just didn't know. So I had a, had a, a, a friend who's a pastor in Virginia. He said that when they're assessing a church plant team, the first thing they ask is how many people own their homes and how many people rent. Um, because that gives you a quick measure of how likely people are to stick around. Um, and I, if we had done that, we would have seen um, a couple things. You know, that there are a couple, particularly key families that were not going to stick around. Um, and they, you know, and they went to good things. Bless them. They, they, it was, they were all good moves, but uh, we, we might have seen that ahead of time. What have you learned about yourself uh, through this process and your time in Statesboro? What am I learning about myself, though? I mean, that growth and mission, that sense, of, that, that sense that maybe this is actually something that I'm gifted in and that I want to be a part of uh, in a deep and rigorous way consistently through life. I learned that. Um, I learned that I do need structure, like that this job has zero structure as a church planner. Like you build your structure and it's really helpful to have some structures in the schedule in a given week uh, to help me be more productive. Um, I do need coaching for that same reason. Like someone who can, who can ask what are you doing this week and how are you organized and, and what are your strategies? Had a great coach through our planting system, a national planting organization called Always Forward. And her, uh, her name is Molly Ruck. She was the, um, my coach and just a baller, very thoughtful, very kind, um, cared, cared for me personally, as well as, as for the church structurally, which is rare. Usually you get people who care about you personally or who care about the structure. Um, you don't usually get them both. And she was both. And I'm so grateful for that. She actually was the one who told me I needed to take this sense of this invitation to, to discernment, to this new position. She was the one who first said I need to take it seriously. She said, you're getting married. This is a change of season. Uh, you've done good work here and there's much more work to do in Statesboro, but this opportunity could be much uh, needed rest for you in, um, in this next season of marriage. And, it's worth praying about. She was the first person. So for someone who's committed to the health of the church plant to tell me to consider leaving is a pretty um, sweet thing. So tell us a little bit about where you're going, uh, what your expectations are at your new parish. St. John's Church, Florence. It's an Anglican Anglican parish. Pretty old school, pretty traditional. Um, they have started attracting a lot of young families lately. One of the weird things about church culture that's shifting right now really has the last decade is that we've, uh, it, it used to be that people, members of a church expected to be present three or four Sundays a month consistently, you know, like they might travel once every couple months. Now people travel once or twice a month, uh, particularly young adults. And so 
consistency is is down across the board, specifically for young people, college students, young families, uh, everybody in between. Soccer parents, yeah, golly, I mean, just it's nuts. So much travel that, that um, families are doing now. So that's that's definitely an effect they're feeling. But a lot of young families that are cycling in, um, it's a, a church that's uh, seems to have a really rich, healthy community. My buddy's been the assistant there for a few years uh, and got hired as the, the lead pastor, the rector, and so called me to be his assistant. And he uh, he's asked me to come specifically to help him figure out what it means to be the lead pastor of this church, help him figure out what the church needs, set vision for the future, um, and then get out of the way. So it's it's a it's a three to five year role. Um, in which we're hoping to figure out what kind of leadership the church needs and what kind of direction needs to go and to help lay the groundwork for those moves. At which point we'll have to rediscern whether or not I'm the guy to help him take it into that next season as a church or whether I should step down and bring somebody else in to do it. So it's not, we don't have like a, a, like a time clock in the contract, but the, the expectation, this role is a season of his of this church helping him figure out how to lead it and design and to help determine what a future we could see for that church, um, which is really fun. That's a great. I'm excited about that. That's a very different way of thinking about being an assistant and um, better than what I usually what I've seen in assistant roles for me. I, I, much more interesting. So, what are your expectations for this sort of day to day working relationship with your uh, I guess new rector, uh, your new your colleague at St. John's. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, he's, he is really gifted administratively and, uh, he's a good, I mean, he's a great leader, a great administrator. Um, he's a good preacher, uh, great kind of people skills. I think I probably, I'm excited to learn from his administrative stuff. I think he, he really is skilled at that. I think I bring some of, um, kind of the poet writer side of things like the more, uh, intuitive leadership than his administrative leadership. And I think that'll be a good, a good balance. But I really do think I have a lot to learn from him, especially just in his family. They've, he's been married for a few years. I got a few kids. Um, I'm excited to learn marriage next to him in ministry. That'll be really cool. So what should people who care about Statesboro be praying about? What, what are your, what are your prayers for this community as you are in the process of saying goodbye? Yeah, the big, I mean, the biggest thing in Statesboro is just that, the, and I don't know how to be more specific than to say there are a lot of folks who don't know the Lord who um, I love dearly and I want them to know the Lord and I want them to, 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 uh, I don't know, maybe prayer for, for people to, I had a friend who prayed earlier today, actually, that the seeds I plant, that someone would come to water them. And that the seeds that I've watered, someone would come to harvest, you know, that there would be um, people to, to continue the ministry and particularly with these relationships that people I love. That's that's the thing that breaks my heart about leaving is these people that I just love that I I've seen grow a little and I want to see grow more. But it, but time is up for me in this place. What advice do you have for people? who care about church planning, church planners appreciate the importance of that particular ministry. What are the critical needs that you'd like us to take to heart and act upon? The biggest thing that planters need are partners, 
people who are willing to like not financial partners that's great too but like people who are on the ground willing to pursue uh the mission the vision of the church plants with gusto people who are ready to come alongside and help and 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 do the work with them um who've caught caught the fire and are 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 in um those people are rare and unbelievable gifts uh and you can't do it without them um we i've had a couple that have come through but in the transient community they've they've often moved away there's been a couple who have stuck around um those people are the people that we can pray for, for our church planters. And I mean, pastorally, the best thing you can do for a church planter is to, um, to remind them that the ministry is, is much bigger than the numbers because at the end of the day, even though, you know, that's true. And even if your leadership, like my leadership at the diocese level and at Christ church has been so supportive and so open-handed, um, still, there's that lingering suspicion. Am I just not doing it right? Is it just not good enough? Am I missing something? And so to have the consistent voices, friends who say, uh, we love you. You could totally fail at this and it wouldn't matter. We still love you. Like you're good. Um, but then also say that, you know, that your ministry is, the ministry is far more than the numbers. The church is a lot bigger than a building. An institution that those reminders are really important for church planners.